Welcome to What Were You Thinking? Today I am joined by Mark Sedwill, former Cabinet Secretary, also known as Sir Humphrey from Yes Minister. Mark has a very long list of important jobs attached to his name, including former National Security Advisor, Permanent Secretary to the Home Office, Ambassador to Afghanistan and many, many more. We discuss what life is like as a diplomat. We discuss Global Britain and the Integrated Review, national security. And of course, we discuss how accurate Yes Minister really is. Now, this episode is supported by BAE Systems, one of the largest UK employers. And with £3 billion of export sales from the UK annually, BAE Systems has a central role in the engineering and manufacturing fabric of the country supporting 124,000 high-value jobs across the UK through a supply chain of some 6,000 companies. And BAE Systems works extensively with its supply chain, SMEs, regional partners and universities to deliver long-term economic growth and productivity, technological know-how and also to develop skills. BAE Systems helps its customers to stay a step ahead when protecting people and national security critical infrastructure and vital information. And they are using their knowledge and technologies to reduce the environmental impacts of their activities and have set themselves the target of achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions across their operations by 2030. So Mark, thank you so much for joining What Were You Thinking? Uh, It's a real privilege to have you on the show because your career in the civil service is pretty remarkable. Uh, You joined in 1989, serving, I think, in the Gulf War Emergency Unit as a very first job and had multiple postings abroad, then became private secretary of Jack Straw. And fast forward, you were ambassador to Afghanistan, permanent secretary to the Home Office, and ultimately cabinet secretary and national security advisor. So there's a huge amount... (laughs) for us to cover today. And so maybe to start off, Mark, why don't we uh, talk about one of the three uh, things that I like to discuss with all my guests, which is you know, what person or multiple people have had a real impact on your thinking throughout your life? Laura, well, thank you. Thanks um, for, for giving me the opportunity to be here. Nice to be with you and, um, and uh, to, to reflect on some of those um, experiences that I've had, the journey, the journey that I've been on, it's it's been remarkable, and I've never regretted a moment of it. So I'm really happy to do this. Um, so there are two people that I I wanted to to flag. I mean, beyond family and and so on, because of course those are always the people who have most influence of course, uh, yeah. on us. Um, uh, and it and it isn't probably what your listeners would expect, because it isn't um, uh, one of the 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 great statesmen that I work for or, or uh, encountered and so on. Of course, all of those people have, in, you know, have influence on, uh, uh, on one. You know, people I work with like General Dave Petraeus, General Stan McChrystal, you know, politicians I work for, etc. But the two people I think that really, uh, I, if, I, if I think back on this question, were one of my teachers when I was leaving school in my uh, upper sixth, the grammar school I went to, um, uh, state grammar school, not everybody went to university. I was the first person from my uh, family to go to university. And the manager of a local superstore that I worked in as a Saturday job, that was my part-time Saturday job when I was that age. And I wasn't sure whether university was for me um, for the reasons I just said, and uh, was offered jobs, including a you know, management trainee and that kind of thing when I was 17, 18. 
and was quite attracted to that and to getting out into the workforce and pursuing that career and you know, in, in, in that area. And pretty much everyone was really dismissive and just said, oh, come on, don't be ridiculous. You've got to go and do this. You're a bright kid. And these two actually separately paid attention to me. And if you're a teenager, having someone who actually takes you seriously is quite important. Uh, and they paid attention and they listened to why it was I was thinking of uh, that different uh, that different career, including, by the way, the guy who was actually would have put me on the management training program. So he was really, you know, he was really altruistic in this. And both of them, by engaging with me and taking me seriously, um, uh, actually persuaded me that that wasn't the right course of action. I should go to university and I should indulge my um, uh, uh, um, um, desire to see the world uh, and so on. But they were really important to me because they taught me that if you really want to persuade someone of something, you have to start by listening to them, not just by telling them what the right answer is. And, and probably have more of an influence on me um, than, than they know. That's really interesting. And that is, that is a very good lesson indeed to, to learn at such a long, young age. I think most people will um, <laughs> be much later in, in life. And so what then made you want to join the civil service? It wasn't, I didn't really think of it as joining the civil service. So I joined uh, the foreign office and mm. it was really that that was in my mind. You know, I wanted to see the world. I'd enjoyed some travel. We hadn't, I mean, we hadn't had lots and lots of holidays, but I had the chance to do a bit of it. Um, I backpacked quite a bit as a student, which in those days in the 80s was less common than it's become since. And you know, backpacked around Africa and so on, which wow. was a fairly um, uh, you know, unusual experience. There weren't very many other youngsters did that at that time. And uh, I just thought, this is the life I want to pursue. And what I really enjoyed about that uh, was, was the sense of just spending enough time and being off the beaten track to get, un to, to get a little under the skin of a country. I mean, you can't in a matter of weeks backpacking, you know what I mean. Um, just to get under the skin of the country, to see the ordinary people, to travel on the, the local buses and, and that kind of thing, um, rather than just you know, whizzing in and out as a tourist and going to the beach and, and all the rest. Yeah. I don't mind, you know, that's great fun too, but, but it's not the same. And so being able to pursue a career where I thought I can really get to uh, understand other cultures, experience more of them, get to know countries, um, just really appealed to me. And so that's why I uh, decided I wanted to join the Foreign Service and, and uh, was lucky enough to have the chance to do that when I left university. So you already touched upon how from a very young age you visited a vast number of, of countries uh, and of course then for your career, I mean actually how many countries have you visited do you know? I did one of those Facebook things once and <laughs> it was nearly, there are a hundred, I mean it depends exactly how what you do about recognition but basically there's 193 countries in the world mm. and uh, I worked out that I had done almost half. Wow. Yeah, awesome. At one time or another. So this this question that I ask every guest takes a bit of a different meaning or uh, slightly um, almost, I don't know if it does this conversation justice, but, you know, what places or, or place have really left a mark on you? Um, the two, I think, and I'm sorry, it's always, I'm, I'm keep giving you two as the answer rather than <laughs> no, just one. No, that's fine. Um, are the, my first posting Egypt and my last posting Afghanistan mm. um, and 
I mean, both, I mean, we are very different countries in many ways, but um, both with a very strong sense of their history, um, uh, you know, both with a lot of Western intervention over you know, centuries, actually, not just uh, decades, but with a very strong sense of culture and history. Um, and where the tradition of, hospi uh, uh, of hospitability to, uh, hospitality to the, to, the, to the outsider, combined with the responsibility of the extended family, the, that, the, the sense of continuity in their culture, and of course, a very strong um, uh, connection to Islamic uh, culture and, and the impact Islam had on the, 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 the culture and civilizations of those uh, two countries. Um, uh, uh, they remain the two countries that, that undoubtedly have the strongest impact on them. What was it like your first foreign posting? Was that a great adventure? Was it nerve wracking? Like, what is that like? Yeah, and both, first? both. Yeah. Um, uh, again, worth, worth, you know, I'm going to I sound, I sound sometimes as though I'm talking about, um, you know, dinosaurs still roam the earth when I started. It does feel a bit like that. <laughs> uh, when I went to Egypt, we didn't have mobile phones. I mean, mm. you know, there were barely analog mobile phones. There certainly weren't digital mobile phones. And I remember if I was calling my parents, I was in my early mid-20s at the time, uh, or my girlfriend back home, I had to book the call through an international operator and then sit in for four or six hours until that call came through and then the operator would, would put it through. So it was, the reason I, I make that point was um, abroad and particularly abroad to somewhere like Egypt, was, was essentially further than it is now. Yeah. Um, you, when you went, you really went. and You didn't see people. You didn't do video calls. You couldn't just pick up the phone and have a chat. There was no social media, no texting. None of that existed. And so you, you wrote letters and you had probably once every two or three weeks, the, the girlfriend relationship didn't survive very long, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, once every two or three weeks, you might get a, a call on the international line. Or a letter breaking up. Uh, yeah. Line. yeah, exactly. <laughs> dear, dear John. Um, uh, and so, so you were further, you were further away. But then, in many ways, that was the thing that made it most exciting because I was in this new place. I'd visited uh, um, before. I mentioned, uh, uh, I mentioned that that I, I um, uh, uh, already that Egypt had a profound impact on me. One of the reasons it did was I also worked there as a diving instructor, the scuba diving instructor down in Sharm el Sheikh. Um, which is now an enormous resort, but at the time, the last hundred miles was on desert roads, literally unmetalled un, un, uh, roads, and you would just wander off the beach uh, and go and dive in places that are now enormous hotel uh, resorts. Mm. And so there was that sense of being somewhere very foreign and very far away and very different to the country and society I'd grown up in, and that was the thing that I think I found most exciting as well as all the events of the time Egypt's always a politically very interesting country but mm. but that sense of being somewhere very different I think was the thing that was most exciting. And did you quite early on in your um, diplomatic career get exposed to you know real nitty-gritty of security and intelligence which obviously is yeah. an area that you really grew into? Yeah I mean that part of the world of course yeah, there's, there's always been a lot of political tension and Egypt um, uh, has always been one of the leading countries in resolving it, whereas the Arab-Israel question or indeed the Gulf War that you mentioned uh, uh, earlier dealing with Saddam Hussein, the aftermath of all of that um, uh, and so on. 
Um, and actually, we had, uh, there was a terrorist problem in Egypt just really beginning to burgeon at that time. There'd been, mm. it, had been, it had been bubbling for about a decade, uh, but it was really beginning to take off at that uh, time. And actually, uh, the origins of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahri, who is now the leader of al-Qaeda, took over from Osama bin Laden when he was uh, killed, was the head of a thing called the Islamic Leagues in Egypt at that time. And that was the domestic terrorist movement within Egypt that was just beginning to um, uh, test the security forces in Egypt uh, severely. And one of the first um, uh, um, times I had to take the real responsibility, I was a very junior diplomat, so nobody really put you in charge of anything very much, mm. um, but was that when there was a terrorist attack on a tourist bus in, uh, uh, in mainland Egypt, in Luxor, um, which is where many of the um, uh, uh, pharaonic artifacts and so on are. And some British tourists, including some quite young British tourists, were killed. And I was the junior officer sent down there um, to try to be the person on the ground, to liaise with the local authorities and to try and sort out um, you know, the, the situation, make sure that the, the, the people who were still alive were looked after and got home and then that we had the right arrangements in place for dealing with the, the people killed and, uh, and then later for their families who wanted to come out and, and understand what had happened. So that put me, you know, that gave me an experience of, of being a diplomat at the sharp end pretty, pretty early on. Um, and I was able to use my Arabic. I'd learned Arabic by that stage mm. to try and um, uh, liaise effectively with the, uh, the, local, uh, the local authorities on the ground. And that's one of the things about being a diplomat, even quite a junior diplomat in, uh, in countries like Egypt, that, that um, although it's a big post for the UK, an important, obviously an important place, mm. you can actually find yourself taking on significant responsibilities quite early because the team is still quite small. There were, you know, it's a big post, but that's still three dozen people, not 300, 400 people. Yeah. And so if you look at all of the things we're doing, you can be involved in a lot of different things. And that's partly why I enjoyed postings of that kind rather than ever really having the opportunity to go to Paris or you know, Brussels or, or somewhere of that kind where you're, you're a, you're, your job is similar in many ways to being in the UK and you're a, yeah. You're a smaller cog in a bigger machine. Bigger machine, yeah. I mean, compared to um, the days when you you started, what's what are the numbers like with foreign postings? Have they shrunk? Uh, how much have they shrunk? They have. Um, it goes up and down, to be honest. So, um, I mean, Afghanistan, for example, when I was there, we had, um, gosh, several hundred people in the embassy, but that was because it was at the height of the, uh, the surge, the ISAF campaign, um, uh, uh, and uh, we were involved across the board, huge development program, mm. law enforcement training programs, and all the rest of it. And that post is now much, much smaller because the as the campaign has wound down. So these things go up and down. When I was in Islamabad before that in Pakistan, that again was a huge mission. I think it might have been our biggest mission in the world at one stage. Yeah. Um, so things flex. There are some places, Washington, where it's always a very big embassy, and probably the numbers overall haven't shifted much, I would think. What has shifted um, in many places is the proportion of uh, essentially expatriate staff, diplomats based in the UK, flying out, spending two or three years and then moving on to another posting versus locally engaged staff. Most, most staff in an embassy are locally engaged staff mm. um, from the country concerned. And that balance has shifted. We have more 
people who are employed as Americans or, or indeed Brits just living in America working for us now than was the case when I was joined. Do you think that's the right shift? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you need a blend. You definitely need a blend because your job in the end, of course, is to understand the country you're in and having people who are working in the embassy for longer, who are from the country concerned, of course, inevitably means that they you know, they have a much greater um, uh, sort of insight into much of much of what's happening in the country concerned. And so mm-hmm. really important you have that um, that insight, that connection, that understanding of the local culture and and so on, linguistic skills, obviously, in, in, in some places. But you've also got to remember that the country you represent is the UK. Um, uh, George Schultz, who was the US Secretary of State, used to pull a trick with ambassadors before they went overseas, American ambassadors before they went overseas. And he'd say, so tell me, tell me which, um, you know, uh, which country you're going to be working for. And they'd go and point at you know, whichever, wherever it was on the map. And he'd say, no, you're wrong. He'd point to the United States and say, that's the country you're working yeah. for. Yeah. And so really important that people people remember that in the end we're there to represent the British interests, the UK position. And so you still you must have people who can do that authentically as well. Exactly. I mean what do you think makes a good diplomat? Um I think um uh, I mean there are lots of good you know lots of qualities that are true of, of, of any decent public service integrity and all the rest of it. I think crucially it's um uh, uh uh, being a great sort of listener, um, you're taking an interest in a place, really wanting to try and see a country through through its own eyes, through the eyes of their own people, really listening more than you're talking, um, mm-hmm. even though, of course, you've got to represent the UK and make your point, but really, really understanding um, the other person's perspective and, um, uh, 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 and the culture and the reasons that people take a, uh, uh, the views that they do. Yeah, interesting. We've already come full circle based on your the advice given to you. You were less and less at a young age. Be a, be a good so, listener. Be a good listener. Yeah. So fast forward, cabinet secretary. Um, that is obviously well the biggest job there is in the civil service, and uh, everyone thinks they have a bit of an understanding as to what it is because well, people who've watched. Yes, Minister, we are familiar with Sir Humphrey, sort of there's a character out there based on that role. Um, and no doubt this is probably the zillionth time you've been asked, <laughs> how much <laughs> is it? How accurate is Yes, Minister? <laughs> One of the resemblances, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because uh, there's a reason I'm guessing it's asked that many times. So, yeah, how how accurate is it? And were you Sir Humphrey? Well, it's, so I would, I often... Well, certainly private, I think I am. They've put me up a couple of times up against a picture of Nigel Hawthorne saying which is which. <laughs> yes, Sir Mark and Sir Humphrey. Um, uh, I mean, I think, look, it's the most remarkable series because it is spot on. And was it 40, 40 years or more ago that it was made during the Thatcher period? And it's still as accurate now. <laughs> Obviously, the, you, know, you don't have mobile phones and all those things, and some of those little elements of it are different. But fundamentally, it's still. Um, a fantastic insight into the working of government and, of course, a brilliant comedy. Um, and I will often tell, if I was speaking to a new entry course of civil servants, I would say, you know, watch, watch Yes Minister. The big secret is it is not a BBC comedy. It's a training video. Um, uh, and we just got someone else to pay for it. Um, 
And there are days when you definitely not, not only think you're in the middle of a yes minister or yes prime minister episode, you sometimes think you're in the thick of it and you sometimes think you're in the middle of Game of Thrones as well, because it's quite a gentle representation of Whitehall in, in many ways. And most of the time it's like that, but not always. Uh, but there are times you can actually think of the episode you were in. I mean, there are times I've thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I know exactly what Humphrey would have said here. Um, because you're almost in real life confronting the, uh, 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 an example of one of the issues that they highlight. And that's the brilliance of the writing. And so for listeners who aren't as familiar with the Whitehall system, how would you describe the role of a cabinet secretary? The cabinet secretary? You've kind of got um, three jobs, really. I mean, three elements to it. One is you are secretary to the cabinet. That's, what ha that's how the job uh, was created. And that means your job is to ensure that the cabinet system, the, the, the top bit of uh, the British piece of the British government chaired by the prime minister, that that system is working, that um, the, the cabinet is able to, has all the information they need to make the, you know, to have the right discussions, make the right decisions, and that those decisions are then translated into action through the machine. So that's sort of the first part of the, the first part of the job. And of course, you do that in support of the prime minister and the cabinet. Um, the so second part of the job is to be the head of the civil service. Um, uh, and, and those two jobs haven't always gone together, but they have done now really for about the last 40 years. Um, and so you manage the permanent secretaries. Those are the heads of all the, the permanent civil service heads of all the individual ministries, essentially the series of chief execs. But you've also got to communicate with the wider civil service. You know, the, people think of the civil service as Whitehall. That's less than 10% of the civil service. Yeah. Uh, right. Most of the civil service is out there in the country providing services to mm. our fellow citizens, whether in job centres or whatever. And of course, even the civil service is only about 10% of that wider public service of you know, the health service and police and, and um, uh, local civil servants and all the rest of it. And as cabinet secretary, although you aren't in charge of all of that, you are probably the most prominent um, figure in that, in that world. You're sort of at the heart of that. And so I always saw a big part of the job as trying to lead that entire community and give them a, a, a sort of common, uh, a common sense of uh, purpose. And then I suppose the third, which probably you know, brings back full circle to the first, is you are the principal policy advisor to the prime minister, the principal you know, permanent policy advisor to the prime minister. Um, and so uh, it's really important every cabinet secretary and every prime minister have a completely uh, confidential uh, ability to have a completely confidential discussion, whether it's about policy issues or personnel issues, um, or whatever it is, government's really hard. You know, yeah. It's a stressful place. Um, prime ministers are under a huge pressure. And part of the job of being the cabinet secretary is to be that person the prime minister can turn to when they're under pressure and know they'll get um, honest advice. Yeah. So what tips would you give to ministers on dealing with civil servants? And what tips would you give to civil servants in dealing with ministers? I think, um, I mean, you know, there's a lot, which is just about, you know, as in any walk of life, um, uh, uh, was it Bill and Ted? Um, uh, that, that, the great phrase from Bill and Ted I used to quote when I do management talks, which is be excellent to each other. Um, and uh, my, my private office team when I left gave me a series of uh, placemats would be excellent to each other with Bill and Ted's excellent adventure uh, on it. Uh, but that's the first thing, just kind of remember that yeah, fundamentally, we're all public servants, whether political or professional. 
Mm. Um, we all went into it for the right reasons, pretty much. And um, uh, we're all just doing our best. And we all face different pressures. The pressures on politicians are different to the pressures on civil servants and vice versa. Um, and uh, you know, recognizing that and recognizing the roles are different and the pressures and stresses are different uh, and trying to understand each other and why um, uh, 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 you know, politicians react um, in, in one way to an issue and civil servants would typically react in a, might react in a different way. Um, all of that, I think, is really important. I think the thing that it's easy to get wrong is, is when people confuse the roles. I used to say, actually, when I was an ambassador, um, and you'd have a visiting minister come out. Don't try to be, you know, don't just read the brief and try to behave like you're a super official. Um, you're not, you're a politician. So talk, and this guy you're talking to, the president of wherever or the minister for whatever, whatever it was, is also a politician. And it's something the two of you have in common, the rest of us don't. So talk to him as a politician. Um, and, um, and of course, the machine doesn't always get that. The machine almost, you know, gives them the same brief they give me. And that, you know, when I was national security advisor, and I said, no, 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 that's, that's the wrong way to do it. You know, we, we've got to recognize we bring different skills and attributes to these relationships. And uh, you've, got to, you've got to be really thoughtful about how you make uh, the, best, uh, the best of that. And so remembering that ministers are politicians and helping them be really good politicians is probably um, the best advice I could give to any official who's working with them. Just to build on the uh, yes minister analogy, as a former special advisor, when I ever had to describe my what my role entailed, I used to say, "We well, remember that character, and yes, minister, we'll try and keep out of a room." Yeah, that was. <laughs> that <laughs> that was you. Um, which I think is fair. Would you say that's? <laughs> there's some. There's some truth in it, Laura. But actually, again, the really good ministries and the really good civil servants recognise that special advisors are also an asset. And if it, and, if, and frankly, yeah. there's a sort of almost lump of power fallacy. You hear people sometimes talk about this, that if the minister has more power, and this is the great yes minister joke, which of course is, you know, is, is very funny, but not fundamentally true, that, that if you have, you know, people think that if the minister has more power, then the permanent secretary of the civil service have less. And if mm. the civil service have more power, the minister has less. And the truth is, you know, and you know this, and the special advisor is very much part of the minister's team in that sense. You know this, that the government is so complex and there are so many other interests out there trying to get you to do what they want, that if the if in a department, the political team and the, the official team are not completely united, neither of you has any authority 100%. because the world out there just goes and moves on without you. And that was particularly true in a department like the Home Office, um, uh, which is always dealing with events and crises and so on. Mm. Uh, and a lot of very big players, you know, commissioners, the Metropolitan Police, Police and Crime Commissioners and fire chiefs and, and, and all the rest of it. And so we were always very conscious that we had to be a team because that was the only way we could impose um, our uh, priorities on that wider system for which we were responsible. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's very... But you're very right, well of course put. there are. Of course there are. You know, because there are different perspectives and it's right that there are, Otherwise, you know, special advisors not much adding much value if they just say exactly the same as a civil servant would say. Of course, you know, under pressure, that can cause tension. But fundamentally, you've got to recognise a team is strongest if it's made up of people with different perspectives. Yeah, definitely. Well put, Sir Humphrey. <laughs> <laughs> not um, sure he'd ever say that. <laughs> he probably wouldn't, though. <laughs> no. um, 
So just um, just out of curiosity, I mean, you as cabinet secretary, you you played you know that that role as advisor to the prime minister for both Theresa May and Boris. How did they differ, and how did their administrations differ? Of course, they were facing different circumstances. Um, at least, in particular, once Brexit was accomplished. That, you know, the dominant issue for the Theresa May's administration was negotiating our departure from the EU. And of course, the dominant issue for the Boris Johnson administration, once that was done, uh, and that was achieved relatively swiftly by then, uh, because the two-year deadline was up, was COVID. And so you just got to remember, they faced very, very different um, challenges. But the job of prime minister, I think, unlike any other job in government, can be shaped around the personality of the individual in a way that foreign secretary or home secretary essentially the individual fits into a job that's pretty much defined and so different prime ministers with different you know personalities working styles and so on can shape the job the the way uh, the way that they want and yeah, i mean obviously I've, I've always maintained complete confidence of my dealings with the two prime ministers i work for and I, and I always will i think that's part of the part of the the professional duty of a cabinet secretary mm. all i what i would say is what people see in public of those two personalities is authentic they are they are who they appear to be and uh, therefore part of the job of the cabinet secretary is to try and help shape a machine around them that helps them as with any prime minister do the job authentically and effectively in their own terms interesting now you mentioned if that cabinet secretary is effectively three jobs but for a period you had a fourth which you just mentioned uh, the national security advisor role now what does that entail because that that is a pretty cool job isn't it yeah i mean it's definitely a cooler job than being cabinet secretary and was the one for which i sort of had i guess trained and prepared and it was only mm-hmm. because of the tragic circumstances of um, Jeremy, Hayward's, Jeremy Hayward's illness that, that I you know, stepped up to become uh, cabinet secretary, a job I'd never really expected to, to, to do. Um, so again, it's almost, it's, again, it's similar in a, in a way. It has three sets of responsibilities. You're secretary of the National Security Council. So just as I described for the cabinet secretary, your job is to make sure that that system is working, that ministers have the information they need to make those decisions, that those decisions are then effectively carried out. Um, you um, uh, are uh, the principal advisor on national security matters to the prime minister and the NSC. You've got to draw all that stuff uh, together. But I suppose the difference is the national security advisor also has essentially an external representational role because most countries have a national security advisor or something similar. And that network um, is an important part of our interaction with, uh, with other countries. And so probably as, as NSA... Um, I don't know, a quarter or a third of my time would involve being on the phone to my American, French, German, Russian, Chinese, etc. counterparts and traveling a lot as well to build those relationships and advance mm. the British perspective on issues you know, as part of a team with the minister, the ministers, the foreign secretary, the defense secretary, the prime minister himself or herself um, as well. But it's part, that's the part of the job that I suppose is different to any other job of that kind um, in government only is different to the mm. cabinet secretary's role. That's really interesting. And um, can you picture sort of picture for us um, where you meet? Is it in a bunker? <laughs> where do you? 
I mean, well, it's not It's not in a bunker. There, there are some rooms at the bottom of the Cabinet Office, Cobra, famous mm -hmm. Cobra, the Cabinet Office briefing rooms, uh, which are windowless. They are at the bottom. The air conditioning is almost always turned up full because we often have quite a lot of people in there, but it's still freezing cold mm -hmm. uh, down there. And those are the classic ops room type of um, uh, 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 institution with big screens on the walls and a big um, table and, and information flowing in which is what you need if you're dealing with a crisis, whether that's um, something uh, as, as awful as a terrorist attack or whether you're dealing with floods or, uh, or whatever it might be. Mm. So some rooms are like that. But most of the time, no, you're in a big, normal conference room, the cabinet room, if we're dealing How with cabinet. How disappointing, Mark. I know. The cabinet <laughs> and the National Security Council itself will generally meet in the cabinet room. I mean, since COVID, of course, we've had to do things slightly differently because of um, remote working uh, and so on. You've got to have secure communications for the National Security yeah. Council. But fundamentally, that's just you means you disperse people into a set of video conference rooms instead. But normally it would take place in the cabinet room. And normally the National Security Council, the officials group that the, the National Security Advisor chairs takes place in a, another conference room somewhere else in the cabinet's office. And you know, they're less, you know, they're less exciting places than sometimes they are, they are portrayed from the outside. Have you, um, I was recently recommended a, a show by Nicholas Soames, and I, I will accept any recommendation from him on anything. And it's called The Bureau, um, a French show about their intelligence service. Have you watched yeah. it yet? I haven't, but I, oh am my God. Told it, I am told it is brilliant, but I haven't. The Figaro seen it. said it's the best French show they've ever produced. Yeah, now, everyone says it's superb. I haven't seen it. Absolutely brilliant. Um, but what's interesting, actually, is is the team uh, that it appears in it is, you know, in in an office space and meeting in rooms very similar to what you described. And uh, yeah. yeah, but if you yeah, think you, you think about you know, a show, a show of our own that is is, abs is absolutely brilliant. And I haven't yet watched the latest series of it because I, I, li I like to try and do these things in a in a in a sort of binge. But it's line of duty. Mm, um, I've not I've been, started my wife, well, my wife and I have been re-watching the earlier series in order to really bring ourselves, you know, sprint into this latest series with, with all of the earlier series in our minds, uh, given, it's, you know, given uh, it's been on for a while. But of course, you know, despite the fact that it's the most, you know, that show builds up the tension most ex you know, in the most extraordinary way. And those interviews, those prolonged interviews they do as the centerpiece of the show. But if you just look at the room, it's just an office. It's an open plan office. With a meeting uh, meeting room yeah. with glass walls, just like any other office, they could be they could be in a bank, they could be uh, almost anywhere. So the drama doesn't come from the environment; the drama comes from um, the issues that they're dealing with, and that's true of national security too. Now, you have experienced drama, obviously not within the Cobra room, although perhaps of a different nature. Quite a few. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking about real drama, like might be featured in the bureau uh, scenes out when their agents are in action but uh, you've already been on the record talking about you've had a f you've had a gun in your face from Saddam Hussein's bodyguards there was a bomb under your seat at a polo match in the foothills of the Himalayas uh, you've been hosted by a man plotting to have you assassinated You've been shot at, mortared, and even had someone come after you with a suicide vest. That is a lot. <laughs> yeah, it shows, it shows, you know, you, you might think you're a great diplomat, but not everybody likes you. 
<laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot there. So, I mean, there might not be time to talk about all of these undoubtedly rather traumatic experiences, but were they all um, whilst in post or like what's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no one's actually come after me at home yet. And I don't think it was personal in that sense. Uh, so the last few were in when I was in Afghanistan um, as, as ambassador and then as the NATO representative uh, there. And, well, you know, we had soldiers dying every day there. So what I faced was, um, you know, nothing like what they faced. I suppose, I mean, the difference is because I was a high profile individual, there were certainly efforts to get me as an individual. Mm. Um, whereas uh, you know, the soldiers were there because they were there in the line of fire and, and they weren't mm. being targeted as individuals. But also, you know, I was well protected and had um, uh, Royal Military Police bodyguards who would, you know, if they thought there was a problem, yank me out of somewhere and, and make sure make sure I was okay. So I never felt threatened there. Um, and you know, some of the things you, you you know, part of my job was to was to be seen publicly. So you know, there were times when I know my team would have rather I was wearing body armor, but I didn't feel I could do so because I was, you know, I, the, the, the public situation I was in. So I undoubtedly made their lives more difficult than they would have they would have liked. But you don't really reflect on those things. And I don't imagine that actually the people who are much sharper in the you know the front line, I mean, you you you've talked about this, but just imagine what it's like to be a 19-year-old soldier on your very first operational tour, mm-hmm. going out in body armor, in 40 degrees of heat, in Helmand not knowing whether you're going to come back or if you are, whether you're going to come back in one piece. That's a, un, that is of a off the scale um, kind of pressure compared to anything that I ever faced. Yeah. Well, you are also president of the Special Forces Club, aren't you? Which um, yeah. is a huge privilege and, and to be able to spend you know, time for your professional career and then now as well, to be able to continue to do that. I mean, the people involved, you know, the men and, and women in the special forces are, I mean, my goodness, I've had the privilege to meet only a few and, you know, nothing compared to what you've, no doubt, the number of, um, of them that you've encountered and worked with and, and things like that, but I've been completely blown away uh, by them. Do you think, do you sometimes wish people knew more about I mean, I guess people I, shouldn't know. I, I, suppose, yeah, I, suppose, point, I suppose yes and no. Yeah, exactly. If I said yes, I'd probably get chucked out of the club uh, because <laughs> you know, ev- almost everyone who is a member there has chosen a life where they don't expect public recognition yeah. um, and indeed um, would um, be appalled at the thought of, of you know, the, the roles they've done and, and in many cases the heroism they've shown being exposed. And I remember one of the nice things about the Special Forces Club um, was it was always mixed because it started out as a club to um, recognize the members of the Special Operations Executive from World War II when that was disbanded in 1946 after the end of the war. And the SOE always had a lot of women in it uh, uh, as well because um, going into occupied Europe um, that that uh, uh, they were better able to operate under the radar screen, um, not arouse suspicion in many cases than male agents would have been. And there were some phenomenally, extraordinarily brave women. And mm. I remember when I was first a member there, you know, decades ago now, um, standing at the bar, you know, ordering a drink, standing next to 
what appeared to be a frail elderly lady who you know, looked like she could have walked off a Miss Marple set. And uh, I was talking to her, and then I asked someone else later on who she was, and she she parachuted into Occupied France on her own. Wow. She wasn't still serving undercover. No, <laughs> no, she was, she was, well, she must have been in her 80s, 70s or 80s by then, certainly in the 70s. It'd be a great um, recruit, surely. <laughs> but, um, but, but you just meet some of these most extraordinary people. Mm. Yeah, that's um, fantastic. Who... Uh, yeah, and, that, and for sheer cold courage to do that is just, yeah. again, just remarkable. Yeah, no, I know it is, it's a catch-22 in some ways, you know, you, as you say, they, they don't seek recognition and it would in many ways harm, uh, you know, or do damage to, to the work they do. But you just, um, yeah, I guess you, you sort of see a bit, bit of it maybe through a line of duty or the bureau and get a bit of a sense of what happens. Um, but whether it's anonymously or, you know, you do hear, I guess, stories post, um, you know, after their passing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I do sometimes wish more people knew about the bravery that, that's out there. But some, you know, some, some series, you do capture it and, um, and don't glamorise it. And that's yeah. the, you know, those are the ones that I find most powerful to, to watch. Yeah. Well, I'm told the Bureau is one of those, so you should definitely start watching that. So I should, I should start watching <laughs> Um, With regards to the integrated review that not too long ago was published, I'm yeah. curious to hear your thoughts on that and, and your views on, on the new sort of vision for Global Britain that was set out, including actually also the tilt, you know, the Indo-Pacific tilt. Yeah, um, I think um, fundamentally, I think it's got the big judgments right. Um, and the fact that it, it was an integrated review, I mean, this was something, you know, obviously by the time it came out, I'd been out of government for, for, for six months, but as National Security Advisor, I was in at the early design phase of this, of this review that built on the capability review we'd done in 2017 and the previous uh, defense and security review we'd done in 2015. And actually, I think it's got the big judgments right. I think um, the key word is integrated. But if the UK wants to have the kind of impact in the world that we have historically sought to have, we have to be able to bring together all of our national assets in a coherent way. We called it the fusion doctrine when I was an essay and they're still using that. But fundamentally, it's, a, it's just about that. And it's about saying we have a really significant military capability. Um, of course, not on the same scale as the United States or China and so on, but still one of the top half dozen uh, in the world, um, one of only a few nuclear weapons states, legitimate ones, um, one of a handful of countries with two um, aircraft carriers, uh, with special forces that are the envy of the world, et cetera, et cetera. We have all of the intelligence capabilities that we've been uh, referring to and where I think it's, it's um, you know, I don't think I'm breaching the Official Secrets Act to say that they're world-class. Um, we are one of the biggest development uh, players in the world and of course you know, that will be true and, you know, that is still true notwithstanding the cut in the development budget mm. uh, and you know I hope that it will be restored to 0.7 as soon as possible and we have one of the biggest diplomatic networks in the world etc and a great police mm. force and great border controls and so on so the key here is you bring all of those assets together in a coherent way and to use a rather hackneyed phrase that enables you to punch above your weight and shape mm. the world in 
line with our interests and values. And that's what this review is seeking to achieve. And of course, the key is not in the review, the key is in the implementation of the review. And, uh, uh, and that will be the test of, of whether it's a success. And what about the Indo-Pacific tilt in particular? Well, I think, I think that, uh, I mean, that recognises the shift in um, the global, um, uh, uh, global geopolitics. I think, I think some of that has probably been overstated, not in the review, but by some of the, some of the coverage of it, that actually in terms of the resources and commitment, um, it, we're still very much a Euro-Atlantic, North mm. Atlantic power. Most of our military will still be in this, in this region, uh, et cetera. And certainly any deployments elsewhere, most of the diplomatic service will be there. Deployments elsewhere can always be brought back into the Euro-Atlantic theater if necessary, if there's a crisis with Russia or, or, yeah. or whatever. But the truth is, um, with the rise of China in particular, but not just China, some other very big, um, uh, important uh, countries and economies, Indonesia, Malaysia, of course, traditionally we have Singapore, old allies like Australia, et cetera, India, uh, and so on. These, are, these countries are going to become more and more important in the global order and are certainly already very important in the global economy. And so for a country like the UK, open trading, the most globalized um, uh, economy in the G20 and so on. Um, what happens in the Indo-Pacific affects our prosperity and security back at home. And therefore, I strongly believe we have to be involved there. We have to be involved there as a security and defense power, and we should be involved there promoting our economic and trading interests as well. Mm. Just quickly on, on Biden and the new US administration, how do you think the UK and, and Boris in particular can cozy up to him and, you know, oh, it's a bit of a weird phrase really, but strengthen that relationship? Some media reports insinuate that is needed. And I think also, you know, what damage do you think, if any, uh, well, what damage or impact did the sort of flirtations with Trump have, do you think? I think, I've, I, mean, I think the Prime Minister has said this himself, and I certainly... Um... Uh, would endorse this, that part of the job of any British prime minister is to establish a good relationship with the US president, whoever that is. It's not our job to decide whether that, you know, the, um, the US electorate has made the right or wrong choice any more than it's their job to uh, take a view on ours. So any prime minister should try to establish a good working relationship with the president of the United States. It's really important. Um, they're our most important defence partner, you know, et cetera, just as they should with other countries, but the United States preeminent among them. Uh, and so I think it was right for him um, to establish a good relationship with President Trump, and it is right for him to be establishing a good relationship with President Biden. Actually, notwithstanding the fact that traditionally conservatives have seen their sister party as the Republicans and uh, Democrats and Labour and so on, actually, it's much more complex than that. I mean, you look at um, the relationship between, uh, of course, you have the, the relationship between Thatcher and Reagan, both uh, conservative and Republican uh, leaders, but looking all the way back to the iconic one, Churchill, right-wing imperialist um, Tory, Franklin Roosevelt, left-wing um, um, uh, reformist Democrat, very, very strong relationship. Tony Blair and George Bush, again, different political affiliations. Tony Blair had been seen as very close to Bill Clinton, uh, but established a, a, a strong relationship with George W. Bush, etc. So mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is important that that uh, that that happens. And actually, on the big issues on the global agenda, notably climate change, 
the Biden administration and the Johnson government are much more closely aligned than we were with the Trump team. Yeah. And then we have the opportunities with G7 and uh, and COP26 this year as well to, to really cement that further. I yeah. Think. And those are big leadership opportunities for the UK, pres- uh, chairing the G7, president of COP26 um, uh, this year to really shape that international agenda, particularly around the big environmental issues like climate change, but also the COVID recovery and all of the economic issues that have arisen from that and the changes we may need to make to the global economic system to try and make it more resilient against shocks of that kind, whether it's COVID or other environmental challenges or economic shocks or indeed political shocks. Um, uh, And the UK obviously has a big opportunity to to shape that and to um, uh, reverse the otherwise temptation to drift into protectionism, which would be Mm. profoundly damaging to uh, our interests and in my view, to the wider global interests. So moving on to quick fire questions. Firstly, I mean, the list must be so incredibly long, um, but can you recount some of those slightly more bizarre experiences that you've encountered during your time at the top of the civil service? Well, I think we've done a few. Um, in, um, uh, in, uh, uh, in this in this. Uh, I think colour, colourful I think anecdotes I, is what we're after, Mark. I think, so I think, I think the one you've mentioned already, the part about the bomb under the chair at this polo match right up in the foothills of the Himalayas, which is a, not an elite sport up there, it's between people in neighbouring villages and, and, it, mm. and it goes back a long way. Michael Palin was there with his team filming the Himalaya series at the time. And of course, oh, wow. we didn't feature because he was filming the local people, not, not us. But there is actually a photograph of me sitting next to Michael Palin watching the polo match. I'd chucked the ball in at the beginning. And so, as I think uh, another interviewer realised that uh, actually, although the story about me having a bomb under my chair is not very well known, um, a genuine national icon could have been at risk uh, wow. too. And that would have been a much bigger issue. <laughs> my goodness. And what, what about from your time in, in, as Cabinet Secretary or... or... I mean, NSA will probably will be classified, so you probably can't talk about that. But um, I think, in a sense, it's an it's an episode that can probably where where essentially both jobs were were uh, were were featuring, and it's when we had President Trump was here on a visit, and we were at Checkers with um, Theresa May when she was Prime Minister and the and the top team there, and I was sitting at the table, you know, taking the note as you do, um, and we were having lunch, and after we you know, had the long exchanges and there's been quite a bit in some of the books and so on about that um about that uh, about that visit and over the lunch president trump was telling some anecdote and he said and it's like in the rambo movies and he looked down our side of the table and pointed at me and said mark yeah you know the rambo movies i bet you watch the rambo movies and i couldn't quite resist just having a big grin on my face when he said it um uh, notwithstanding the fact that it wasn't didn't come out as a very flattering anecdote <laughs> Was he right? Of course I've seen the Rambo. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a boy. <laughs> um, so if you could um, uh, host your dream dinner party and, and you're guaranteed that all the pe- your invitees will attend, who would you invite to your dinner party? Um, well, one of, the, one of the great things about this, the jobs I've done is once, sometimes you get to meet your heroes. And so I have met Henry Kissinger, who's mm. one of mine. And so I'd undoubtedly have him there. Um, 
if we're allowed people who are no longer with us, I would have the late Duke of Edinburgh, mm. uh, who I just think would be the most extraordinary guest and who has had the, or had the most extraordinary life um, uh, as well. So I think he would be, um, he would be uh, a, a remarkable, uh, a remarkable guest. Um, uh, uh, who else? Um, I'd probably want to have someone completely different. So um, uh, uh, Audrey Hepburn. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, whom I was well, in love with field. when I was a uh, yeah. Well, you know, I was always completely in love with her when when I was <laughs> when I was youngster, and she was making movies. Uh, and so most of actually most of them, you know, long before uh, long before my time. But of course, she then went on to become a UN ambassador. So. Um, uh, and, and did a did a great deal of uh, good work uh, for the UN as well as being an exquisite uh, um, an exquisite actress. Um, and uh, gosh, who else? Um, I think that's probably it. That's, that's, that's probably a it. nice, intimate, you know, COVID compliant dinner. Exactly. Right there. And then finally, what is the best advice you've ever been given that you'd like to pass on? Be authentic. Simple as that. Be authentic. That is that is great advice. Well, thank you, Mark, so much for coming on. Thank you. Um, uh, it was uh, it was fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that, please leave a review and subscribe, and tell your friends and family. If you have any questions you want me to put to them or guest requests, do get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. I would love to hear from you. Music.